see the ritual of Kevin Garnett, the rosin in honor of Michael Jordan, what he used to do to Johnny Redker in Chicago before the games, and, you know, go over and tap his heart for all of his friends. Today's his 28th birthday. What a wonderful gift it would be for him. TCL is a proud sponsor of the Score North Studios. TCL, America's fastest-growing TV brand. It's Minnesota Sports Rewind. Welcome to another episode of Minnesota Sports Rewind, where we go back and do deep dives into prominent Minnesota sports events. Games, trades, drafts, you name it. Uh, Positive, negative. I'm Phil Mackey. And today I'm hanging out uh, with Danny Cunningham and Manny Hill, both from the Raised by Wolves podcast on Score North and uh, also uh, on assorted other shows. But because we're about to do a deep dive uh, into Game 7 of the 2004 Western Conference Semifinals, Timberwolves and Kings, had to grab the two Wolves guys in the studio here for the, I'm pretty confident in saying, the pinnacle moment in a depressing 30-year franchise history. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't disagree with that. I I can't... when you sent us a rundown for this podcast, you put you said maybe what are the top five moments in Wolves history? Dude, it is, and it's difficult to come up with five of them. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna attempt to do that later on in the episode here. Like you have to dig deep. You do. In fact, if you start to take things off, like I think in one of my notes to you guys, I said let's take the cat lottery. Like you won the lottery and got cat. Let's take that off. Mm-hmm. But that's definitely one of the top five things that's ever <laughs> happened to this franchise. Well, if you take that off, then you can just include actually drafting yeah. him. Like maybe that's the moment <laughs> instead. Right. So I, I'm, I'm, let's let's set the scene. We'll go through just a brief game summary and then get to some key questions here about Game Seven, 2004 Western Conference Semis. So this was the eighth straight playoff appearance for the Timberwolves. We. I mean, Manny, we took for granted. It was almost a decade, and we just took for granted the Wolves are in the playoffs every year. Yeah, it was, it was like the like the Twins. They'd get to the playoffs, and then they would lose in the first round. This was the first time they ever advanced out of the first round, and the only time they ever advanced out of the first round. It's also the only Game Seven in Wolves franchise history. And the, oh, go ahead. Well, no, I was just going to say it's pretty remarkable when you go back and you think about. 97, the first year they make it against the Houston Rockets, and they, they get swept. They get the one playoff home playoff game in the first round against uh, Hakeem, and uh, you know Charles Barkley was Chuck, on that Rockets man. team. That yeah. was a really good Rockets team. And then you just and then you go like the next year where they they almost take down the Gary Payton, Sean Kemp, Detlef Shrimp, Seattle Sonics the next year, and that was a really good Sonics team too. They get to a game and five. Then just, yeah, went to a game five in Seattle, and the Wolves actually had a 2-1 lead in that series. Uh, and then they lost game four at Target Center, I remember. But you, to your point, you, you sort of take for granted the, the fact that this team was able to get to the playoffs under Kevin Garnett and Flip Saunders. And it kind of had a, a revolving door of role players that sort of cycled through there you never really had guys aside from Garnett you never really had that second guy that was there alongside Garnett for the entire time other than Flip Saunders being the coach yeah and this year that we're talking about now 2004 was the first time I think that everybody felt like the Wolves could actually go to the NBA finals with it was Garnett Garnett was in the prime of his career it was the best season Garnett ever had and it, this was the first time where you go into the playoffs of the number one seed, and it's like this team could go to the finals yes. and, and I think, possibly win it. I think part of that feeling is the Lakers all hated each other, too, because oh, this was yep. at the end of that Shaq-Kobe dynasty in L.A., and they hated each other. That's why I, – I mean, not to take anything away from the Wolves, but they were or, the more or, talented or the team. Yeah, or the Pistons who actually won the finals that year. Yep. But if Shaq and Kobe didn't hate each other, there might be a different outlook on not only this team, but that year as a whole. Yes. So, uh, the, in fact, the landscape of the Western Conference is maybe just a whole section of, of this show or some other show at the time. Uh, this, so the series itself between the Wolves and the Kings, and this was a, this was a Kings team that was probably – a year or two from completely fading out, but this mm-hmm. was definitely the the back end of that Kings run that started with their last hurrah with white chocolate in the mid to late nineties, and then they transitioned to Mike Bibby as the point guard, and they went to 
it was the Tim Donahue series in like 2000 against the Two, Lakers. 2002, 2002 against the Lakers that they absolutely should have won, and that team would have won the. They would have won the title. Yeah, three but, years, three years in a row that Kings team, o two, o three, and o four lost a game seven. Mm-hmm, yeah. Three years in a row. And isn't that crazy that they've played in that many game sevens? And in, in the Wolves franchise history, they've only played in five seven game series like five best of seven game series not five game sevens they've played in five total seven game series playoffs that's amazing and so the the series went like this the wolves lost game one at home and then in game two at home they were down with three minutes to go by eight points they were down 88 to 80 with three minutes to go and i remember watching that game at the time thinking did they really just finish with the number one seed in the western conference and kg finally gets his mvp that he probably should have won the year before and they're going to be down 2-0 to this fading, sliding, and Bobby Jackson uh, injured for the for the Kings team. And that's when Sam Cassell went bonkers in the last three minutes. Mm-hmm. And it culminated with a 17-foot jump shot to put the Wolves up by three points with like 24 seconds to go, game two. And does the big grapefruits dance, <laughs> which by many accounts behind the scenes was where he injured his hip. Mm-hmm. There's It's never been fully confirmed, I don't think. But... Sam Cassell busting out his famous dance at the end of Game 2 is what maybe altered the rest of the series and the rest of the playoffs for the Timberwolves. So we'll put a pin in that, too. Um, and then So so Wolves come back. They win Game 2. The series goes back and forth and leads us to this Game 7. KG, Chris Webber was the headline matchup. And the, if you look at the power forward scene in the Western Conference at the time, loaded KG, Webber, Duncan, all as young in their prime players, you also had uh, Dirk Nowitzki yeah. on the rise. Pretty good. A young Zach Randolph on the rise in the West. Uh, Pau Gasol, a young Pau Gasol on the rise. Yeah. And some other guys that at the time would have been big names. But like we're talking Hall of Fame players up and down the power forward position in the Western Conference. And uh, two of them in this seven-game series. And one quick thing about Game 1 specifically is, and they, they've they changed it now in the way that this is done, but Kevin Garnett got his MVP trophy prior to tip-off in Game mm-hmm. 1. And then he came out and he had a really bad game by it's his standards. He finished with, with 16 points and 18 boards, but he was 6-21 of 21 from the floor. I'm curious if he doesn't get that trophy beforehand and say they do it the way they do it today where there's just an award show at the end of the season, if maybe Game 1 goes a little bit different, if Garnett's not quite as amped up and and plays a better game, maybe the Wolves actually win that one instead of what actually happened. Isn't it amazing, not to keep going on side tangents here, but even in his bad games, he's still going to get you like 18 rebounds and four (laughs) blocks and some assists, right? He also turned it over six times, which was killer in that game too. Very un-KG-like. Yeah. So quick game summary here, and there's so many key questions to dive into. We had uh, Doug Collins and Kevin Harlan on the call for this one. Just an absolute a young Kevin Harlan. Market. Yep, amazing. Cheryl uh, uh, Cheryl Miller was yep. the sideline reporter in this one. Sister, yep. You had Dick Bavetta as the lead ref in this game. <laughs> Dick Bavetta looked like he was 93 in this game, and you had Bennett <laughs> Salvatore too. That's right. <laughs> yes, and there there were some experienced referees on the floor. We'll just leave it at that. Yes. Uh, starting lineups and guys who came off the bench and logged some minutes in this game. For the Timberwolves, you had Kevin Garnett, Latrell Sprewell, and Sam Cassell, the big three. Trenton Hassel, the uh, three and D uh, wing specialist. Irvin Johnson, mm-hmm. who I've got some questions about. Fred Hoiberg, Michael Oluwakandi, Gary Trent, and Derek Mar- I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm looking at uh, Game 7 because Oluwakandi did not get any action in, in the Game 7. I was looking at game two. Wally Zerbiak off the bench. Fred Hoiberg. Mark Madsen was a tornado of turnovers. Mm-hmm. And Gary Trent played in this game. All Gary Trent did was miss layups. Yes. Yep. Gary Trent missed like I, he took two. He took three shots. Two of them were at the rim missed layups. It was bad. And Mark Madsen had three times under the hoop where he would get fed a perfect pass and like kicked it out of bounds. It like hit his chest and just yes. he couldn't hang on to that it. Was he was like trying to set a, a nutshell, set a man. screen on a bounce pass to him. It's like, no, dude, pick it up. Uh, <laughs> and the Sacramento Kings, they rolled with Peja Stojakovic, Mike Bibby, Doug Christie, Chris Weber, Vladi Divas. Brad Miller, Rodney Buford, and Darius Sangaila off the bench. So they and, and Sangaila only played a minute. Yep. So the Kings really played a seven man rotation in a game seven, uh, mostly because Bobby Jackson was uh, unavailable with an injury. And, and Anthony Peeler was suspended. Right. And that's that's primarily why Rodney Buford was getting a lot of minutes because Anthony Peeler got suspended after his little skirmish with Kevin Garnett in game six. And I think the rumor fill was that Anthony Peeler goes up to Kevin Garnett and he like kind of elbows him in the chest to try and get KG to retaliate so that KG would get suspended for game seven. 
At least that was that was always the rumor. Um, I don't know how much I don't know how true it was or not, but it, it was funny seeing that because and Peeler and Garnett were buddies because they were former teammates with yeah. with the Wolves, and so so that was always uh, that was always something that I always thought was kind of funny. And uh, uh, the, the game itself was just an absolute grind. Oh, I mean, it, was it was a rock fight. And oh, God. A lot of times in Game 7s, you'll see teams come out and play tight. And Game 7s are always the lowest scoring games of any playoff series. That's oh, just that's yeah. how it is. We've seen it far more times than just this instance. Yeah. But there were six total points scored in the first four minutes and 20 seconds of the game. <laughs> like, was it was so four bad. to two at the first TV timeout. It was terrible. And it seemed like every shot early on was, and it's a, it's a testament to what basketball is now compared to then. It was contested fadeaways and twos with a hand in your face and just like not, not well flowing offenses. The Wolves jumped out to an early sort of six to 10 point lead. They got Mike Bibby in some foul trouble in the first quarter, and uh, it gets to halftime. And Sam Cassell comes out with just a barrage of patented 15-foot jump shots right away. Just boom, elbow here, boom, elbow there. He just worked magic on the elbows. And uh, the Wolves had a 41-31 halftime lead in this game after Chris Webber missed two free throws that would have cut it to eight leading into the locker room. Kings come storming back in the third quarter. They take the lead for the first time with about two minutes left in the third quarter. And then it was pretty closely contested the rest of the way throughout the fourth. KG basically took this game over in the fourth quarter. It just one of the all-time great Game 7 performances that you'll find. 32 re- uh, points, 21 rebounds. He had four assists, five blocks. He was altering shots. He dominated Chris Webber. He nails a dagger three with a hand in his face at the end of the shot clock. Shot clock is down to five. And Miller's got Garnett way outside. The Wolves end up winning 83 to 80. KG jumping up on the scores table uh, or by the scores table and, and pumping up the crowd. Weber to the tie. And the Minnesota Timberwolves are going to the Western Conference Finals. The Wolves move on and they eventually lose in six games to the Lakers, in part because Sam Cassell was basically debilitated with, uh, with a hip injury. So th- this game. I remember why just like my thought about this game was just an amazing flowing haymaker filled game and then when I watched it back for the first time and probably probably since the game happened it was an ugly ugly representation of what you now see in the NBA just uh you know offenses designed for long twos and uh, and KG mostly mopping up and trying to save everybody in the fourth quarter but there's a certain charm to it because of what it represented uh, in that era of Wolves basketball. The guys trying to get up and down the floor, it looked like they're trying really hard to run really fast and they just can't move. <laughs> like, that's what it looked yeah. like. The There's no free-flowing basketball. And one of the craziest things is for driving kicks in this this game and really this era as a whole, instead of the guy being in the corner for a three, <laughs> he's like three feet in front of the three-point mm-hmm. line. Yes. So you're kicking out to an 18-foot mid-range jump shot. You're like, just take a step back and it's worth a whole another point. And because it's only an 18-foot jump shot, there's a hand in your face. Yeah. Because it's right. easy to close out. Right? I, and like there is no spacing on the floor. The Wolves averaged in this series 16 threes per game, which was six more threes per game than the entire regular season. And at one point, Doug Collins in his commentary said hey this this team is taking way too many three-pointers i think minnesota's taken too many threes in this series they're not a big three-point shooting team 10 during the regular season over 17 they've got to get to the line more and they're going up against the number one three-point shooting team in the regular season some dancing by weber counted for two Man, could you imagine anyone saying that <laughs> during like this Rockets Warriors yeah, series? That you know, the Mike Rockets need to pump the brakes a little bit on these three point shots. And the Wolves took ten three pointers in Game Seven. <laughs> yeah, they were three, they were for, three 10. for ten. That's that's unfathomable now in today's NBA. That's so, a bad quarter. Yeah. If you only yeah. in today's NBA, if you only take ten threes in a quarter, it's not good. Yes, yes. I, I actually I tracked the early just the early shot attempts. The first four shots of the game combined were all long twos, and two of them were fadeaways. In fact, within the first 90 seconds, you had a Trenton Hassel hand-in-face fadeaway from, like, 15 feet. Mm-hmm. Thinking, could you ever imagine, like, what, what would happen if you had a guy who, like, he could shoot if he was wide open, but he's mostly your defensive wing stopper, and this is a Game 7. You have Kevin Bleeping Garnett and Sam Cassell, and this dude takes a twisting turnaround fading shot 
from 15 feet, and that was just kind of what uh, what the NBA was about. I also want to point survive. out. No, he would not survive in the NBA. No. I also want to point out uh, Irvin Johnson and Mark Madsen as the the rotating centers for the Wolves in this game. And you could probably put Brad Miller to some extent in this category for the Kings, although Brad Miller had a little bit more offensive game than these other guys. Imagine in today it being acceptable strategy to have a guy or multiple guys on the floor who just like you you couldn't give them the ball, <laughs> right? Like if you gave them the ball. The entire defense clears out from any range, even from five feet. And yet there was there was a whole plethora of Irvin Johnsons in the NBA and Mark Madsons at the time, where it's just, oh, it's just a guy who's seven feet and sets screens and grabs some rebounds and plays 20 minutes, right? And they paid those guys, too, back then, too. That was the crazy thing. Like, they gave those guys, like... Like a Donald Foyle. A Donald Foyle. That's exactly what I was thinking. A guy like a Donald Foyle gets a contract paying him, like, $8 million a year, which at the time was big money, and... He's like averaging five and three a game, yeah. and he's not like not giving you anything. So yeah, it's remarkable to see guys like that actually in the NBA. Because if you're someone today that can't do all those offensive things, you can at least run fast and jump high. Yeah, and these guys couldn't do either of those things either. Yes, yes. Uh, all right. So key question number one for you guys: If Sam Cassell hadn't gotten hurt, would the Wolves have won the title in two thousand four? I don't think they would have won the title, but I definitely, and I've always believed this, I definitely think they would have beaten the Lakers in the conference finals. I don't know if they would have beaten Detroit because I think that Detroit team in 04 was, first of all, they were so good defensively, and they had, when they traded for Rasheed Wallace in the middle of that season after he spent like three days with the Atlanta Hawks. One game. If you have a Rasheed Wallace Atlanta Hawks jersey, I want to meet you. (laughs) But when when they got Rasheed Wallace, that really sort of changed that team because the Pistons before that were a nice team, but they needed that extra guy that was going to give them a little bit more, <coughs> to use a Tom Thibodeau term here, toughness, you know, just and and give them a low post threat too because they didn't really have anybody that could score on the low block at that time, which at that time in the NBA was really valued. That I think that Detroit team was on. A mission, uh, on a mission. It was just everything sort of aligned perfectly for them. So I think it would have been tough for the Wolves to beat them, but I definitely think they would have beaten the Lakers. The only sample size or the only real head-to-head uh, you know, tale of the tape that we have is the Wolves did play one game, and it was at Detroit against the Rasheed Wallace Pistons on February 20th of that year. I just found it. And they won the game. This must have been a rock fight, too. 88-87. to The Wolves beat cool. the Pistons. <laughs> and uh, and Rashid came off the bench in that game and only played about twelve minutes. I don't know, probably got ejected for technicals or something, uh, or maybe that was that was that was right around the time where he would have made his debut with the Pistons. So it probably would have been, yeah. Uh, so uh, yeah, KG in that game played forty minutes and put up twenty five, thirteen, and five. So it's it's hard to say because we don't really. It's not like they played each other four times and Rashid was on the team. But how much of a? So I think they would have won the title. I'll just I'll just say it. Okay. I think to go six games with the Lakers, basically without Sam Cassell, and uh, I think Troy Hudson might have been out for that. Yeah, Troy was out. For he the lit him. Playoffs. He lit the Lakers up the year before. He was a yeah. Lakers killer. That that first round series the year before was kind of Troy Hudson's coming out party. So even if you would have had Troy Hudson in that series against the Lakers, you yeah. went six games without a point guard basically against the Lakers. And I think I think the the Wolves probably win that series against the Lakers in six or maybe seven games. And then I always took for granted because that Pistons team was such an underdog team. And we all kind of think, yeah, it was a great defensive team with no stars. And they took advantage of the Lakers having bad chemistry and Carl Malone, Gary Payton, just trying to chase a title. And I always thought of it as the Lakers were the that that was the championship. If you would have beat the Lakers in the Western Conference, then maybe it's a grind against the Pistons for a couple games. But you probably win the championship in uh, in five or six. But. That's probably underselling that Pistons team yeah. too. That that's, was that's underselling that Pistons team big time. I mean, but it would have been a series. That core, been a series. that core won the finals in '04, went to the Eastern Conference Finals in '05, '06, '07, '08 with Flip for at least a couple of those years. Too, like right? that was a really, really good Pistons team. You're definitely underselling them. I I don't think Sam Cassell getting injured means that they would have won the title if he doesn't. I still think the Pistons were winning the title that year, even if Sam Cassell was healthy. I, I just think that they had too much. Danny, do you think the Wolves get to the championship series, or do you think they still lose in like seven to the Lakers? I, I think I think they still probably lose. I mean, you're still looking at a prime Shaq who, I mean, he had 20 and 15, almost 20 and 16 in that series. 
and even if Sam Cassell's healthy, they're still not going to completely stop Kobe. I think the series probably goes seven, but I would I would have picked the Lakers. I mean, in the in the closeout game against the Lakers, just to, just to illustrate how hard up the Wolves were to put anything on the court. So Latrell Sprewell and KG played 44 and 43 minutes in that game. KG in the closeout game uh, in which the Wolves lost 96 to 90 and had a lead going into the fourth quarter still. And Kareem Rush went off. Yep. And KG goes for 22. He did turn the ball over eight times, 22 and 17. And fouled out. He did foul out. That's probably the only reason he he was at 43 minutes instead of not higher number. But the Wolves played Oliver Miller five minutes Mm -hmm. in that game, and Derek Martin was the starting point guard and had to play 24 minutes. They had to play Michael Oluwakandi 17 minutes just to foul Shaq four times. Yeah, that's that's basically the only reason. Like Flip Saunders played four centers that entire series. He played Irvin Johnson, Michael Oluwakandi, Oliver Miller, and Mark Madsen. Basically in there to eat up fouls against Shaquille O'Neal. In that closeout game, as we keep going down this path here, uh, those four centers combined for fifteen fouls, mostly of Shaquille Mm -hmm. Uh, O'Neal. Candy had four, Oliver Miller had four, Madsen had four, and Irvin Johnson had three. So so I think think they win the championship. Manny says they get to the NBA Finals and they they lose to the Pistons. And Danny, you're saying they might not have even got past the league. I don't think the result changes too much. Okay. Key question number two for you guys. The so I'll, I'll, actually it's more of a it's a statement and then you guys can tell me if I'm an idiot okay my favorite I think Kevin Garnett was sort of the Philip Rivers of the NBA in that if you look at his all time numbers and you and then you look at his some of his contemporaries and then look at the situations of those quarterbacks in the NFL he drew the short end of the stick if Philip Rivers plays with more stable front office more stable coaching uh, staff. More stable organization. I think Philip Rivers has, I don't know, two or three championships. At, at, if 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 instead of Tom Brady with the Patriots, it was Tom Brady with the Chargers and Philip Rivers with the Patriots. I think we're talking about Philip. I'm not saying Philip Rivers is as good as Tom Brady. Sure. I'm saying Philip Rivers has like three or four rings. A lot of it's circumstance. And and I and I have always contested that even though Tim Duncan is widely regarded, rightfully so, he's got a handful of championship rings as the greatest power forward of that generation. Kevin Garnett was a better player. He was a more well-rounded player. Uh, he was a more dangerous opponent. And I think I think players feared playing against Kevin Garnett more. But he was stuck with the bumbling franchise. Flip Saunders was a great coach. But Kevin Garnett's main sidekicks, as Manny sort of illustrated at the top of the show, his main sidekicks during this era before Sam Cassell and Latrell Sprewell were Joe Smith, mm-hmm. Wally Zerbiak, maybe even Anthony Peeler on that list. How about this? The minute that that team blows up, so they they go to the Western Conference Finals, they get beat. The next year they miss the playoffs. There's contract issues. And we're right back to Ricky Davis and Sebastian Telfair. Although, no, I'm sorry. Telfair came over in the KG trade, right? So, But like Ricky Davis, so his main sidekicks outside of the one year were were just, you know, sixth men off the bench caliber players. And Tim Duncan gets the best front office in the NBA. Uh, it is wonderful of a coach as Flip Saunders was. Greg Popovich is a better coach, best of all time. Yes, and uh, and you also you also put multiple Hall of Fame players or Hall of Fame caliber players in and around Tim Duncan. Whether it's David Robinson, Manu Ginobili, Tony Parker, they surrounded him late in his career with a bunch of talent. Kawhi Leonard uh, for the last few years. So I think I think KG gets the short end in the conversation between Tim Duncan and himself, mostly because of things that are out of his control. And uh, and and this series against the Kings, you saw like he's stepping out, he's hitting threes, he's blocking five or six shots, he's grabbing every rebound, he's throwing precise laser passes cross court, he's just owning the entire uh, aura and flow of the game, and uh, it just kind of makes me sad thinking that it's not really a key question, it's just a monologue. I'm just sort of sad. You're just sad. The KG's career wasn't better represented during those twelve years or whatever with the Timberwolves. I think one of the most underrated aspects of KG's game that doesn't get talked about a lot because we, we talked about, you know, the the double-doubles and he was a great rebounder and, and one of the greatest defensive players of all time. But KG as a passer, when you consider the the supporting cast that he had, he never, even, in, even when Sam and Spree were here, KG never played with another player that was 
at or close to his level of caliber of players. So to be able to, in 2003, to average six assists a game as a power forward when the next best player on your team is Wally Zerbiak or, or Rasho Nesterovic, like he he had so much on his shoulders for basically a decade in his first stint with the Wolves that it 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 is kind of unfortunate to your point Phil to to think about like he gets credit for being a great player but I don't think people younger people realize like how great of a player he was for the better part of 12 years with the Timberwolves before he was traded to Boston and here's where my kind of I I understand your if he was in a better situation how much better would he have looked and you can kind of flip that too with numbers. Okay, was it would he have been better, or were a lot of these really good numbers on bad teams? And how much of an impact? Yeah, he only won one playoff series in Minnesota in in how many years? He was only the best player on a finals team maybe once. He 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 won how many series as the best player in the series? Where Tim Duncan, those are countless. Yes, he had a better supporting cast, but there was also no question that he was the better the best player on at least four finals teams, if not five. So that's where you can flip it to and say, yeah, maybe if he was in that situation, he would have had a better career. But even then, what Tim Duncan did, I, I think, sure, maybe gets understated because of his personality. Where KG was this this loud guy, he was going to be in your face, he was going to have the personality that we see so much in the NBA today that we didn't see quite as much back then. And Tim Duncan was the exact opposite of that personality wise. I think part of what I'm saying is, if I could make another cross sport quarterback comparison. KG is is Dan Marino and Tim Duncan was John Elway. And you know the, the Broncos had wonderful defenses, organization. The the Dolphins had a couple decent wide receivers with Dan Marino and Don Shula. Don Shula was probably past his prime as a coach once Dan Marino really got into his prime cuz Don Shula was like 70s coach of the NFL. 72 Dolphins, yeah. And 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 was still the coach of the Dolphins in the 90s with Dan Marino. I just just to further illustrate here, uh, I'm not going to die on the hill of KG should be remembered as better than Duncan. I'm saying in an alternate universe, I think KG was a better player and would have received all of those things that you mentioned or would have been the best player at age 27 on a championship team if it was the Spurs. The 2002-2003 Timberwolves, so the year before the uh, Western Conference semifinals game that we're talking about here, this was the Timberwolves roster that won 51 games in a loaded Western Con- a Western Conference with peak Kings, peak Lakers, peak Spurs, peak uh, Mavericks. It, like 50 wins was was getting into the playoffs basically as a prerequisite. And you had Wally Zerbiak, Troy Hudson was a good offensive point guard, but Troy Hudson, I, I I think it was proven over time that Troy Hudson was more meant to come off the bench as a spark plug, right? And he had to start 74 games for the Wolves the year before. Rasho Nesterovic started 77 games, played 30 minutes a night. Kendall Gill, age 34, played 25 minutes a night for 82 games for the Timberwolves the year before. Rod Strickland played half the season. Gary Trent, Joe Smith, Anthony Peeler. If you just took that collection I gave you and said, all right, how many wins does that team have in that Western Conference? It's a lottery team. It's probably a top six drafting team in the NBA. You add Kevin Garnett to it, and they win 51 games the year before. And it's just, it's so sad that from the mid-1990s, and I know that their blueprint was Stephon Marbury and KG for the next decade, and then Stephon Marbury blew it all up uh, and wanted to go play out east. And so Terrell Brandon came in, did a pretty good job, but it wasn't the two-young-player core that they envisioned for the next 10 years. I just think it's amazing if you and you can play this roster game for pretty much all of the KG era. Mm-hmm. Look at this ridiculous roster that he took <laughs> to forty-eight wins or to fifty-one wins, etc. And then, uh, and then it was. I just remember how exciting it was when Kevin McHale finally said, "All right, we're going to make some moves here. Going to bring in a couple really good players." Sprewell had a falling out with the Knicks, and Sam Cassell was available mostly because he was a veteran, etc. Um, and and then you thought, okay, maybe this is a three-year window. For this nucleus. Now it's KG, Sprewell, and Cassell. And then you can build around those guys because the thought after they lost to the Lakers was, okay, whew, that was terrible, but get the band back together, ride this nucleus out, 
and just come back and do the same thing and just have everyone be healthy at the end of the year. And they were playing catch up from the beginning of the season. They um, they had the run after the All Star break in which KG yells at the camera, "We come in, yeah. we come in." Um, but they couldn't get it done, and Latrell Sprewell eventually decided after a three-year, $21 million contract was slid in front of him that he's got kids to feed, and that's not enough money. And uh, no one ever offered him anything close. So. Got to feed your room, kids, man. That, that, that <laughs> locker room, I remember that 0405 year, was it was, it was pretty it was pretty toxic. Sam was complaining about his new – because Sam wanted a new contract. Spree, you know, they gave Spree the extension to your point, three years, $21 million. He, he did the feed my family thing. Wally was complaining about minutes and starting and, you know, Wally wanted to be back in the starting lineup and it was just, you know, and Flip got fired in the middle of the season. And so it it was, that year was, that year was tough. And they got off to a pretty, I remember they got off to a pretty good start. They were like the top two seed in the West for the first maybe month and a half of the season. And then the contract talk started up and then everything just sort of spiraled out of control. Yeah. Do you guys think let's let's jump into this year? Sort of a I guess sort of a Mount Rushmore discussion. This is does anyone disagree that this game seven win over the Kings was it's the number one moment in franchise history? Absolutely. No question. Okay. Yep. So what are the next four? Like what in any order? We don't have to put them in order, but if you're ranking the five best moments in Timberwolves history, and I'm not gonna count winning draft lotteries. Okay. So <laughs> what about making the actual pick? All right, we, if, if we because we'll we might be one, stretching one Carl Anthony Towns thing, we'll put one Carl Anthony Towns draft thing in it. So whatever, you, if you want that to be winning the lottery or drafting, we'll put it all in one bundle. Okay, and that's one. Of, so that's two of the five. The, the The only other two that for sure come to mind that have to be on here in my mind are beating the Nuggets in Game eighty two mm-hmm. last season of uh, last full season of Tom Thibodeau, and getting to the playoffs. Right at the end of the year, yeah. Even though it felt weird because we like the the chemistry was off and the the team wasn't super fun to watch, but I think everyone put that away for one night and they beat the Nuggets and they go forward. And then KG returning to the franchise and the Wolves beating, I believe it was the Wizards at home mm-hmm. and made a run in the second half and just the whole atmosphere of KG coming back to the franchise, which leaves a spot open. I I, I don't have one that I'm like dying on a hill for. So. I've got a couple for you. One, I think. Trying to remember because it was so long ago, but I think the game to clinch their first ever playoff berth, I think it was on the road against the Clippers, and I think Stephon Marbury hit a buzzer beater to win a road game against a bad Clippers team. But that ended up clinching their first ever playoff spot in, in franchise history. It would have been late season 1997. Yeah, okay. And the other one that comes to mind was... It's a beating MJ. It's the first time they beat the Chicago Bulls, okay. which was the next season at at Target Center. And that did, was did, like the last year of Jordan's Bulls. But do we get confetti for that at Target? Center? Yes, we did. We got confetti for a regular oh, season win over yes, the Bulls. Yes, <laughs> yeah, it had been. But Pippen was. I don't think Pippen was playing. Was Pippen playing in that game? I think, I think Pippen played. Okay. Confetti happened, nonetheless. Yeah, it did. The yeah, confetti happened. Jordan played. Rodman played. Yeah, it was uh, that. Believe it or not, I think is one of the biggest moments in franchise history. I'm, I'm curious, and I'm not saying this is necessarily on it, but I'm curious how close it is, is the first game after they fired Tibbs with Ryan Saunders getting the win in OKC. I think that's probably a moment yeah. that deserves some discussion. It's strange because all of the 50-point games that have happened for the Wolves, with the exception of Carl having one, like Derrick Rose, that's not really a moment because you don't feel a connection to him as the franchise. Corey Brewer, no. Mo Williams, no. Oh, slow your roll on the Mo Williams connection. I what love I love me some Mo Williams, <laughs> but also it's Mo Williams. The Wolves' list of 50 burgers is the most eclectic in NBA history. It's it has so to be, right? funny. It's yeah. so funny. I, I mean, the fact that Mo Williams scored 50 points in a game, is it's beautiful and K- KG never had a fifty point game. I think his career high was forty six or forty seven, maybe. Yeah. But yeah, KG never had a fifty Dude, point KG game. KG had so many games where he would where he would pump the brakes on scoring so that not to not to rack up box score. You know, I, Kevin Love was accused of I want my box score. He wants his rebounds. KG was more about I want to be the consummate teammate and do everything I possibly can. And maybe that means only scoring 22 points in this game instead of 42 points because I need to get 20 rebounds 
so that we can win and then get these other guys open for five or six assists. And he got criticized for that. KG, that was kind of always the running joke. I mean, we all loved him here, but that was always kind of the running joke was that, well, you know, KG doesn't really hit the big shot in late in games. He's not, you know, he the team wins and he's carrying the team, but... You know, when they sometimes when they need a big bucket, you know, the KG's not always the guy. He's always making the right pass instead of taking the shot himself. That was always one of the little ridiculous criticisms that that people yeah. gave him here. So I want to ask. So Manny and I sort of grew up in the KG era of the KG Randy Moss. I mean, this is we have a much different viewpoint on this because we were so immersed in it as kids and then as adults. Mm-hmm. And Danny, you're coming in from Cleveland background perspective, so you. And you've been an NBA guy your whole life, mm-hmm. and so and you're you're a little younger than we are, but I'm assuming that you caught most of, if not all, of KG's career as a basketball fan, just sure. from afar, right? Sure. What is so our perception is KG? It's a crime that the Wolves couldn't do more to support him here. Um, he's one of the greatest power forwards of all time. Gets knocked and dinged because the Wolves were so bad for so long. What is your outside perspective on the Timberwolves during that era? The Timberwolves in general, I guess, but specifically during that era, and then Kevin Garnett as a as a performer. I mean, I don't think the era matters because I think that it's essentially been the same story for all thirty seasons that they've existed. It's been not for all of them because they always haven't had that star, but they've had three really good bigs in Garnett and Kevin Love and Carl. If you want to throw Leitner in there too, but I don't think Leitner belongs in that exact. Category. No, he does not. And it's been the same story where they've had this this uber talented guy and they just can't surround him with the right pieces. And then the clock eventually runs out and you trade him. And obviously Carl hasn't been traded, but that's a possibility down the road, whether we want to talk about it or not. So that's kind of the the outlook is it's the same story. And this was just kind of the first chapter of it. And then it repeated itself and it's starting to look like it's repeating itself a little bit here with Carl now. So but that happens a lot of other places, too. You can look at the Cavs in the first LeBron tenure. It was that with a better player than Kevin Garnett because LeBron was surrounded with, again, Mo Williams, Delonte West, Zadrunas Ogauskas. Joe Smith. Joe Smith, yes. <laughs> Wally Zerbiak. Wally, yeah. Like, these were the key guys. Pretty much the same team, actually. <laughs> the same and, guys, and, yeah. and that team won 66 games and couldn't get over the hump. So, I've, I... I don't necessarily feel bad because I witnessed it in, in my childhood with a better player than what Garnett was in LeBron. But also, it does suck to see someone so talented just be so unlucky with the, the front office system and just really unlucky things that have happened to him, like the Joe Smith contract and, and all of those things that kind of build. And you're at a point where like, I can't be successful here. And then obviously in Boston, it was a different story for him where they they won the title his first year and then lost in the the conference semis the next year yeah. to Orlando and then the finals to the Lakers and then LeBron went to Miami and their run was essentially over. It's tough I think for Wolves fans to to watch what happened with Kevin Garnett in Boston. How is see. the feeling on that? I that's something I've always been curious about and I don't necessarily have a good answer is how do you guys as Minnesotans feel about Garnett leaving and immediately experiences the highest level of success that you can experience in this game? I will tell you at that time I was ecstatic for him i wasn't a celtics fan i didn't like the fact that it had to be the boston celtics but for him as somebody who grew up watching him play and cheering for him and things like that i was i was thrilled for him i was thrilled for ray allen because i was a big ray allen fan too even though he wasn't playing for the wolves but should have yeah, probably should have. That's, that's, should have played for that's, that's a re- that's one. a rewind episode at some point. <laughs> yes, um, multiple but, titles if the Wolves had paired Ray Allen and KG for ten years. But I think what what did it for me with Garnett winning that title in Boston was the post game. Michelle Tafoya is talking with him. He does the anything is possible thing. But I like, think that's the most overrated thing he's ever done. <laughs> but the the fact that he had mentioned he mentioned Minnesota. When he was talking, when he was talking to Michelle, he said, "This is for everybody in Minnesota and everything like that." That was big for me as a Kevin Garnett fan because it was like you knew that he still had a lot of, even though he wasn't here anymore, he still had a lot of love for everything that happened here. Even though it was for the better part of twelve years, it was a really poorly run organization, and they could never put the right surrounding pieces around him for to, for them to win at a high level. And, but the fact that he still had a lot of emotions and love for 
here where he spent the first 12 years of his career yeah that did it for me so yeah I was, I was thrilled for him i uh i echo a lot of what manny said i think going back to when he was traded to the celtics there's a lot of times when when athletes will demand a trade what so kevin love does the sit down with Woj when Woj was at yahoo and basically he he calls out david khan and, and said all the things that fans thought too but the way but then some of the things he said about the organization and how he's going to remember that and I think fans looked at Kevin Love, who then lied about knuckle push-ups. And like, when, when a player starts to work his way out of an organization, even if he's sort of right, mm-hmm. it feels like betrayal. I mean, Kevin Love said a lot of things that fans were thinking about the Timberwolves and David Kahn. But because he tried to finagle his way out of the organization behind the scenes, it still rubs people the wrong way. And, and you've seen that with, with other players in town before. But KG... Was was completely the opposite. In fact, I think they had approached KG a couple times, maybe in the year or two prior, and said, "Hey, man, like our cap situation is bleeped, our roster's bleeped. You know, we should we should do what's right by you and just reset this thing." And he and he said, "No, I don't want to go anywhere else. I'm Minnesota. I've been here my whole adult life. Uh, this is my franchise. Flip was my guy, even though Flip got fired the year after uh, this Western Conference semifinals game." And I, I just think when he got traded to the Celtics, fans felt irate at the organization for screwing the whole era up mm-hmm. and super happy for KG in a bittersweet way that he gets to go probably win a championship. I think we all figured whatever they're putting together in Boston is going to include multiple superstars and et cetera. Well, you remember, Phil, that first game when the Celtics came back to Target Center that season, Garnett was hurt. He didn't play, but the game was, I remember the game was on ESPN. And before the game started, they gave KG this great, you know, introduction. And he was, you know, he was there in street clothes and he was just, the, the, the crowd just went nuts. And I mean, and how does, when, when have we ever seen that where a superstar gets traded in his prime and he comes back to the place where he was and gets like a huge ovation? You never see it. Guys always go back and they get booed. LeBron, LeBron went to Miami and then goes back to Cleveland. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They hated him. They booed him out of the building. I yeah. mean, it's it's it was a really really unique situation where a superstar leaves in you know the better part of his prime, comes back and gets an ovation. Yeah, yeah. I think and I think fans. I'm speaking for most fans. I think when I say when he won the championship, it felt a little bit like yeah, that should have happened here. But super happy for KG yep. and all the just all the work he put in for for 12 years. And the the Celtics did it right too. They if you go look at the way that they rested him and the way that they, they backed off on his minutes, he was allowed to defer to star players instead of deferring. Like, there was a moment in Game 7 against the Kings where KG gets the ball underneath, like, boom, one dribble, two or three defenders get sucked in, and he's in the paint. And he could have gone up over two or three defenders. He does it all the time with a little baby hook or a little fadeaway. And he sees Irvin Johnson wide open on the block, probably seven feet away from the hoop. And he's like, boom, suck the defenders, unselfish KG. I don't need to get mine right here because Irv's wide open. I'm going to dish it to Irv. And poor Irv gets the ball with his nine knee braces, goes up, (laughs) a little one-handed bunny, clanks it off the rim. And Doug Collins made the comment, that's just KG, man. Sometimes he's unselfish to a fault. And in Boston, he was able to be his unselfish self. And kicking to guys like Paul Pierce and Ray Allen and whoever, whatever other Eddie snipers House. they had. Eddie guys House. That, guys that could make shots. Yeah, or Rajon Rondo to do something. Yeah. There's a reason that Irvin Johnson was open in that yeah. spot. <laughs> right. I, I mean, that this wasn't by accident. I love how this is just the dump on Irvin Johnson show. Irvin Johnson, you put in some great years in the NBA and hopefully uh, – no, Couldn't make it today. Us. What are some other observations you guys had about the game itself? Or I, I Well, let me throw this one out there. When I watch old NFL clips from the 70s and the 80s and then like specifically the 70s and like the game looked different and players looked different and the like the flow was different and compared to now it's it's like a 30 year gap and it kind of evolved and you had more passing in the 90s I felt like there was a 30 year gap in what I watched in 2004 versus what I'm watching now in 2019 as we record this as Danny said earlier in the show the sets are being run for 18 and 20 foot jump shots. There's no stretching. I believe it was the very next year that, that Mike D'Antoni's Funball Sons, seven mm-hmm. seconds or less sons. That was yeah. the next yep. season. And that was like this wild, crazy 
deviation from the Pistons and the Spurs and those Eastern Conference teams and the you know the race to 90 points. And all of a sudden, these dudes are jacking threes and putting up 110, 115 points a game. And I just I I can't believe how much different things looked and felt, and also non HD TV too. It just made oh, it feel my, older. That's what I was going to bring up. Is <laughs> how did we do sports before high definition? Oh, because man. this was miserable. To like, it was difficult to tell who was who at times because the quality of the TV <laughs> picture is just so poor back yeah. in two thousand and four. Yeah. It was so bad compared to what it is today. We're so lucky that we're in the era that we're in because watching sports, like you can look at the TV and you can see Steph Curry. You can see the logo he has on his mouthpiece now. Right. Back then, <laughs> you couldn't tell who was who. It was so bad. Yeah. Yeah. I think one thing that stands out for me is for both of these teams, really, it was it was a great series in that it obviously it went seven games and most of the games were tightly contested. But it was it was I remember at that time thinking it was it was refreshing, not just because the Wolves were, you know, a, a, a prominent team in the league at that time, but it was refreshing to sort of see someone other than the Lakers and the Spurs getting a big spotlight in in the postseason. Now, the Lakers and Spurs were playing the opposite Western Conference series, but it was it was cool to see, you know, the Wolves and the Kings like. Two teams that were two franchises, really, that were really aligned along the same path. Both teams had been poorly run for a long time, and this was kind of the the pinnacle moment for both for both franchises. And they were they were colliding with each other. And for the Kings, I mean, that was a that was a really great Kings team for that three year period where they lost those three game sevens. And you know, you just kind of wonder what if what if the Tim Donaghy thing isn't going on and the Kings beat the Lakers in 0-2, which they should have, and they would have beaten the Nets in the finals that year. I mean, how does how does the path of that team change? You know, what do they end up playing the Wolves still in 2004? Do things, you know, how do things work that way? So I think both of those, this series sort of symbolizes two franchises that for the most part have been poorly run, but this was kind of, sort of the pinnacle moment yeah. for both, and there, there was – so many like what if moments along the way. Too. I mean, you nailed it. So here's how parallel these franchises ran during that period. Well, let's because the Kings, the Kings were a franchise long before the Timberwolves. But if you start them off at 1989, mm-hmm. no playoffs until the mid 90s, and the Kings popped up, went to the playoffs in 95, 96. The Wolves got there in was it 96, 97, right? Yep. And then they both go on these runs of eight consecutive years of playoffs, one Western Conference Finals for each of them. Mm-hmm. And for the Kings, it was the it was that Lakers series that everyone talks about in 2002. And then off the grid after about 2005, off yep. the grid. And the Kings haven't made it back to the playoffs since 2006. Mm-hmm. The Timberwolves made it back once a year ago as we record this. Um, and both both ran sort of shooting offenses, right, with versatile power forwards and uh trying to trying to put a couple wing shooters out there. Wally Zerbiak, Peja Stojakovic. You got KG and Chris Webber, their careers, you know, C Webb was in the league of a few years before, but both of their careers sort of they were the two biggest, you know, them and Duncan and then Dirk sort of came along a little bit later, but those two guys were sort of the two premier power forwards in the league that weren't winning titles because of, you know, because of Tim Duncan and Shaq and everything being in the mix too. Yeah. Any final thoughts from you guys? Uh, you brought up the seven seconds or less sons. And I just want to speak on them a little <laughs> bit here because that started the very next year and that changed basketball into, it, it helped shape the version of the game that we see today. Yeah. The Sacramento Kings, the very next year, they had a, a pretty good year offensively. They averaged almost 104 points a game, which today would be, not that good. The Suns, and they were second in the league. The Suns scored 110.4 points per game. That over six points per game more than the second place team. That is unbelievable. That's like the same gap from second to 15th. Wow. Remarkable. Just how, how much of a, of an innovator Mike D'Antoni was with that team. I remember there was a game in that season. Amari Stoudemire had popped up and Steve Nash. That was Nash's first MVP. Yeah. 
back-to-back MVPs. Joe mm-hmm. Johnson was on that team. And the Timberwolves were still sort of viewed as maybe they're the kings of the West until they get, because they won the Western Conference, the you know, regular season crown the year before, and they got off to a slow start. And they're trying to get the old guys, or get Cassell and Sprewell, get these guys going. And there was a matchup, I think fairly early in the season, between the Wolves and the Suns, in which the Suns had a 40-point lead after the third quarter and sat their starters. And Amari Stoudemire made some comments chirping at KG and those guys after the game. And that was, that was the game where I had hope as a Timberwolves fan at the time. Like, mm-hmm. no, they can get this back on track. And But that game, it was like, man, this is a one-and-done. They missed their window. And uh, and now the Suns are trash-talking them. This random Suns team and this Amari Stoudemire guy are just trash-talking on the way out. To piggyback off of Danny's point, the Wolves in 0304, they held their opponents to 89.1 points per game. Whew. That was seventh best in the wow. league. Wow. Oh, rock you fights. Seventh that? best in rock the league. Rock fights. <laughs> Could you imagine that today? They My averaged God. 94.5 points per game, which was 10th in the league. That man. Year. The number one seed in the Western Conference. That is uh, and it's aggressive, to, man. To further that point. The the team that won the title, the Pistons. What was their defensive rating? Because they they had to be the near the top, the right? One, yeah. They had to be up there. They were either them or the Spurs were probably number one. Well, it has to be. I would say the the peak. Maybe I'm wrong on this, but peak grind out rock fight NBA of that era, mm-hmm. the, like the post Michael Jordan pre Funball era. Game four of the 2003 NBA Finals, in which the New Jersey Nets, who lost the series. Beat the San Antonio Spurs seventy-seven to seventy-six. There was some seventy-seven this, to seventy-six. This might be my least favorite era of basketball of all time. The post-Jordan pre-like fun NBA. It, it was just so bad. Yeah, I mean, go go back and look at the the O five finals between the Spurs and the Pistons. I mean, the two premier defensive teams of that era the two best defensive teams of that era oh yeah and just look at some of those box scores we had a game set oh man game seven yeah 81 to 74 game one of that series spurs beat the pistons 84 to 69 so in in this in 2004 (laughs) score the rockets warriors series 2004 the year the pistons won the title them and san antonio tied for the best defense with 84.3 points per game allowed man 84.3 which means frequently they were holding teams in the 70s that season yes man oh man hey guys thanks for uh for recapping the pinnacle moment in timberwolves this was fun absolutely danny cunningham manny hill i'm phil Mackey. this is minnesota sports rewind If you enjoy these episodes of Minnesota Sports Rewind, you can help us spread the word by giving us a five-star rating wherever you listen to the podcast, whether it's Apple or Spotify, and giving us a positive review. Thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you next time.